Uh, well, uh, Lorna, I was wondering about the um, rate of hospitalizations compared to the rate of infections uh, elsewhere in the world. It seems to be trailing more than it did with other variants of uh, the coronavirus. What are we seeing in Alaska? Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, in other countries and in the lower 48 in regards to uh, there being more infections, but uh, less burden on hospitals. But but overall, the denominator is still very much larger than it was with Delta. And so that's creating a lot of pressure on hospitals to, to meet that need. Um, so here in Alaska, what we know from today's perspective you know, there's about 250 folks in ICU beds right now, and in about uh, one in 10 of those are hospitalized related to COVID. So about 10% of all folks hospitalized in ICU beds are related to COVID. And only five of those are, are on the vent. So that's really uh, uh, good to see that number decreased as compared to several weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I remember probably November when we first started talking about Omicron. We weren't sure what the, you know, the daily counts are going to be, but uh, this count here of 10,202 new people identified with COVID over, what, three days is, uh, well, two days, I think. That's pretty transmissible. That's very well, doing a very good job of transmitting from one person to the next. So, if we stand back and look at the map of Alaska, we're, we're currently back in all red, red alert. Jerotha, let me uh, ask you, how are things looking at uh, South Peninsula Hospital? Well, good morning. Thank you. It's a little bit of a mixed bag. So um, the good news is hospitalizations still remain very low to um, not at all. Um, this week, we've only had one hospitalization for COVID. Um, in the last week, we've had 15 visits to the ER. Um, where our numbers are really um, noticeably high is in the world of testing. And um, we, um, in the last week, we collected 1,236 tests. And that's um, extremely high. Um, in the middle of December, we were only down at like 500 or so every week. So it's really, <clears throat> it's more than doubled. Um, in the last month as far as the number of um, test swabs that we're collecting. Positivity rate is high. In the last week, we were um, 19%. And if you just look at yesterday's numbers, um, we are at um, 20% just yesterday. So um, high positivity rate, not a surprise. Um, when we look at all the towns and states that went before us, that's the same um, story that they're reporting out. Um, we do continue to offer the monoclonal antibody infusions, though we are um, asked to um, limit the um, audience or the patient group that we can offer those to. Um, a, a month or two ago, there was um, no supply concern with monoclonal antibody infusions because we had a variety of brands and mixtures that worked on the um, the Delta variant, but the Omicron variant, um, it seems that there's only one monoclonal antibody that um, that seems to be most effective. And so we do have those, though we are um, trying to limit those to individuals who are at risk of serious complications um, from um, having the, the virus. Oh, and, you know, I was just um, going to ask you about that because uh, I had talked to somebody online this week who said that his uh, spouse or partner 
uh, was fully vaccinated and boosted, but got a um, breakthrough case and was told that he couldn't get the, the monoclonal antibodies. Um, so I, I'm sorry that they were not able to get it. The good news is that must mean, I, I don't know, um, you know, how that conversation went between them and their provider, but that must mean that they are outside of the um, kind of the risk group for um, who the, the tier that is being offered that right now. A question from a listener, and as based on the Supreme Court's uh, decision this week, uh, will staff be required to be 100% vaccinated at SBH now? Well, South Peninsula Hospital um, is following the CDC mandate, or excuse me, the CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services regulation. So um, the Medicare regulation is that if you are in healthcare and you accept Medicare or Medicaid payment, then you are required to either require your employees to be fully vaccinated or have um, the employee has filed a medical or religious exemption. Um, and in filing the exemption, then those employees may be subject to additional or different um, PPE uh, or um, testing standards or guidance. Um, so yes, South Peninsula Hospital is participating in the Medicare regulation and we um, uh, effective this week um, have rolled that back out again. So it was on hold um, because of a lawsuit that the state of Alaska along with 10 other states um, had participated in a lawsuit that had gotten appealed the whole way to the Supreme Court. And so during that appeal time, um, the, the regulation was on hold in those um, states that was part of that lawsuit. And so it was on hold here. We had rolled it out for about a week and um, then the lawsuit happened. And so then it was on hold. And then um, the Supreme Court ruled last week that the CMS regulation um, was upheld. So um, we have since rolled it, um, reactivated it all and um, the new deadlines for that is by February 14, all employees will either had to have gotten their first dose of a two dose series, gotten the single dose of the single dose series, or have filed and gotten an exemption approved. Mm -hmm. How many exemptions have uh, folks been granted at SBH so far? There's just under um, 100 so far that have been um, approved. And we, at, at most recent count, it looked like there's about 30 um, employees <clears throat> who have yet to either file an exemption or begin their vaccination. So we're pretty close to um, everybody um, finding a way that works for them to maintain employment here. Um, while being able to um, keep um, keep others and themselves um, safe. Mm -hmm. I uh, so you said one hundred were approved, not just uh, applied for. So hundred were approved. Yeah, it's just under it. I don't I don't know that number. You have to understand these things change um, pretty quickly. So it's um, just under a hundred that um, yeah. that have been approved so far. And how many employees do you have? 
Uh, let me open a file. I believe this that that is in the, um, so these are not just employees because this guideline is for any of the travelers or the contract workers that we have working in the building as well. Anybody that is going to have um, um, a lengthy interaction with another employee or a patient. Um, so that number is over 570 that that, um, that, that applies to. 577, I believe. Hmm. Okay. So uh, a solid 20% are getting an exemption, roughly. I'll defer to you on that math there, Jay. <laughs> okay. You know, I don't know how to ask this question without getting into people's religious beliefs, but what, what does it take to get a religious exemption? The um, Medicare, when Medicare rolled out the regulation, they provided pretty um, clear guidance, if you will, on um, what a medical exemption would, um, how that would be defined and what a religious exemption would be defined. And they did not like, they did not invent the, the definitions. They were able to refer to um, past um, labor laws and um, e -E, um, equal employment opportunity laws and just really kind of gave the framework of legally what um, those exemptions, um, how those would be defined. Oh, okay, sure. Warren, let me ask you um, about the future. Uh, as of January 17, 2022, national forecasts predict 9,800 to 35,700 new COVID deaths will likely be reported during the week ending February 12th as nationwide but that but this seems uh quite a range could you talk about that a little bit how these things are calculated oh sure thing jay you, you know uh the, the thing that's most concerning about omicron is that it's a roughly about four times as infectious as delta um and delta was highly infectious so, so probably what that means is um some estimates point to about 50 to 60 percent of people uh, could get infected with Omicron over the next several months. Now that's just an estimate and I've seen and we've heard higher estimates, uh, but throughout the pandemic, our one of our main goals remains the same and that's to flatten the curve. So some of these folks will, you know, infections are gonna, they're gonna keep coming no matter what, but we're particularly concerned about uh, the burden placed upon uh, healthcare and other related systems. So if we're able to spread that out over time, then it's a little bit easier for us to get through uh, this particular uh, spike um, and get us into the future. So what we've seen in South Africa and other countries too, is that Omicron in particular comes on strong uh, and then it starts to taper off somewhere in the vicinity of eight to 12 weeks. Um, so if we can flatten the curve and spread this out, or slow down transmission, it will be better for uh, not only healthcare related to COVID-19, but also the healthcare that's needed for everything else. Mm -hmm. And I think too, you know, there's a lot of question, good questions out there about vaccines. Um, you know, at this point, everyone that's five years and older should get vaccinated and everyone that's 12 years and older should get boosted um, just as long as it's been at least five months after that of last dose in the primary series. And I think that maybe what we might see in the future is additional vaccines that focus on the virus in different areas. So with Omicron, what we're seeing is that particular variant has over 50 mutations, 
but 30 of them focus or, or are concentrated on the spike protein. So what we might see uh, later in the future is vaccines around the globe that, uh, that focus on other mechanisms for protecting uh, the human uh, body. What, uh, what about breakthrough cases? Uh, how are they uh, behaving under uh, Omicron? I mean, I, I see that many more people are getting sick, but uh, are a lot of them breakout cases? Do, are those broken out? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of breakthrough cases with Omicron, and, and we think that it's more than Delta, and that seems to be certain in other countries and perhaps the lower 48. We don't have Alaska-specific uh numbers yet and that's those are really hard numbers to collect uh so it brings up a really important question um we just get omicron anyhow and get the get the infection and get it over with but i gotta say you know there's a lot of reasons why um we should avoid infection with omicron um but i'll just limit it to six quick reasons number one is if you get omicron there is a risk of severe disease Number two, you might transmit uh, Omicron to someone who's at high risk for bad outcomes. The third one um, is long COVID. We don't know who might get uh, signs and symptoms that carry on for months or years after infection. Uh, fourthly, you know, that's overwhelming hospitals. <clears throat> Fifthly, you know, there is no guarantee that you won't get uh, the infection again. The immunity that you get from being previously infected is finite or it, it only lasts so long and then you're susceptible again. Um, but lastly, like Dorota was mentioning earlier, um, the treatments that we have uh, that were effective against Delta aren't uh, all effective against Omicron. And, and we don't know how that might look uh, in the future. But one thing that we've seen with other uh, variants like P1 and Alpha is that we lost some of our uh, meds that just didn't work on those variants but we gamed them back with Delta, so they were effective against Delta. So not quite, you know, there's no way of knowing what we'll see in regards to future variants. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, we had a question from a caller asking about the test kits that the president is sending everybody. Uh, very easy to sign up and request one. I looked last night, but I didn't need to get one, of course, because we've got the uh, Bartlett Street Clinic. But... Uh, Apparently, there's some concern about these kids getting cold during transit or being left out in front of uh, you know somebody's porch. Is there any way to know if these things have been compromised by the cold, or is there what are what's being done to keep them from freezing when they're sending them to Alaska? Do you have any idea, Lauren? Oh, those are good questions, and I appreciate that. You know, this is something that pharmacy and healthcare and other sectors, you know, here in Alaska, you know, continue to work with you know, getting uh, products to people in such a way that they're, they're still stable and usable when they arrive. Um, and that's including vaccines and stuff like Narcan. Uh, but just a few points, you know, most of those take-home tests can't freeze, uh, but check the directions, uh, uh, you know, read through the instructions once you get them or before you buy them if you're buying them. And we don't know what kinds of products the federal government will be offering. Um, so there might, there's likely going to be a variety of different manufacturers that the federal government will be offering. Um, and in terms of shipping to your home, it's a good idea to, you know, watch the tracking system to make sure that someone is home or you're ready to receive it when it arrives. Um, and then what we do know is when they're shipped in large quantities, like to Alaska or clinics or retailers, they're, they're typically Typically, uh, the shipping is temperature controlled. And, uh, 
You know, we don't know exactly how the new federal process will ship uh, to cold climates like Alaska, uh, but we'll learn more about that in the near future. Well, and I guess, you know, one uh, thing I'd like to highlight too, uh, and you kind of pointed to this earlier, Jay, is folks can get online right now in, in order test uh, to be delivered to their home from the federal government. And that's really easy if you, if you have access online and you just go to covidtests.gov, pardon me, that's C-O-V-I-D-T-E-S-T-S dot G-O-V, and you can order them. And the shipping is likely to start uh, in about 7 to 12 days after you order it online. And Jay, if mm -hmm. we can stay on testing for a second. Um, yes. So for the last month, uh, we have offered those home tests at our counter, at our walk-up um, test clinic, um, but we are um, officially out of those. So we no longer have any of the take-home tests at the um, test site, and I do not know when to expect or if to expect a, a new shipment in the immediate future. Um, and I also want to just comment about um, just the testing experience and turnaround time. Um, so because there is such high demand for testing right now, it looks like um, the slower times or the more popular times for testing are right when we open at 9 a.m., the lunch time and kind of that end of day, like when school's getting out and work is getting out that four to six. So I would just, if you have a flexible day, um, you might consider, if you're coming to test, you might consider the mid-morning, kind of that 10 to 11 window, or that mid-afternoon, like that 1 to 3, um, because it seems like those are the um, least popular hours. Um, otherwise, if you're coming right at opening or lunch or closing, you can expect, um, you know, probably like a up to a 30-minute um, wait or, or experience. The whole time wouldn't be waiting, but um, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. oh, that's uh, good advice. Well, it is at uh, 9.26. Um, we don't have any more questions coming in. And so, uh, Dorotha, maybe you have some last thoughts? Yes. I um, did find the clarification on who is um, eligible for the MAB treatment. I know that's a topic of concern for some folks. And so I just wanted to um, clarify. So right now, it is um, prioritized for the immunocompromised individuals who are expected who are not expected to mount an adequate immune response to the um, to the vaccine or infection due to their underlying condition regardless of their vaccine status and the second group is individuals not up to date on the vaccine and are 75 years of age or older um, or anyone 65 years of age and older with the high risk factors such as cancer, kidney disease, chronic lung disease, um, diabetes, heart conditions, mental health disorders, um, tuberculosis. So they, the, the providers have a pretty long defined um, kind of list of conditions that put you into that um, group that has a high risk factor. So um, we're doing our best to make sure to get the treatment um, to the individuals who have that high risk for hospitalization. Okay. Uh, Lauren, any uh, last thoughts? Oh, I just want to say again, um, thanks so much to all of the healthcare providers out there, nurses, public health nurses, nurse practitioners, doctors, DOs that continue to show up every day for this past uh, couple years. 
And you know, it's a real great time to be Alaskan because these folks continue to show up no matter what, making the impossible possible. And I guess maybe lastly, I would say that, you know, um, these healthcare systems can continue to struggle to meet the need, um, but a layered prevention, you know, like including being fully up to date on vaccinations, uh, wearing a mask helps to prevent uh, the spread of disease. But if you turn up um, sick, um, take care of your health, talk to your provider uh, about treatment options and hope you feel better soon. Thanks, Jay. Yeah, you know, I've got a couple of questions emailed in. Uh, so I'm going to pass this on here. So uh, here's a question. My four-year-old grandchild and her vaccinated parents just recovered from mild cases of COVID. Is she now protected as if she were vaccinated from contracting COVID if she is exposed again? And the family had stomach flu-like symptoms, but no respiratory symptoms. And she's wondering if this is common. And the follow-up is, can vaccinated adults who have recovered from COVID recently contract and transmit Omicron again? Lauren? Oh, yeah, I hope that household's feeling better, especially the four-year-old. Um, but, yep, uh, you know, we do know that you do get some protection moving into the future from past infection, um, but reinfection is certainly a possibility. Uh, the thing about protection from previous infection, but also from vaccination, is it doesn't last forever. Um, so eventually, as this pandemic continues to go on and unfold, uh, those folks will be um, susceptible to getting reinfected. So reinfection is, is certainly a big deal. That's why we continue uh, to encourage a, a layered approach to protecting yourselves and those around you. Okay, and the question about stomach flu-like symptoms, is that common without respiratory? Yeah, that the, the whole how, it, how that disease manifests or how it pops up or shows signs and symptoms in each person is, is a little bit different. Um, but thankfully, it sounds like that that particular household of three, it was pretty mild symptoms. But yeah, you know, just having a symptom like a stomach or GI, that, that's certainly common or on the list of possible signs and symptoms of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And the last question, can adults who have recovered from COVID recently contract and transmit Omicron? Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. You know, it's there's no way of knowing from person to person how long uh, the protection from previous infection um, lasts. But also, uh, you know, that's something that we don't quite know right now. We don't have Alaska-specific uh, data on that, but we're keeping an eye on it. So I think the take-home here is uh, if you haven't been boosted, uh, go grab a booster shot um, and continue to use those other measures of protecting yourself. Like give a little distance between folks and wear a mask, especially when indoors. Mm-hmm. And here's another question uh, emailed in. With all the home tests out there, how will we know what the COVID rate actually is? Will uh, this be factored into the rate calculation somehow? Oh, you, you know, we've got a lot of different metrics that gives us hints to the true underlying um, uh, positivity or the true rate of infection. Um, but the thing about each of our metrics, like daily average uh, positivity over the course of seven days or the newly reported uh, positive cases, um, those all give us hints to the true population, which we never really know. Um, but yeah, what we're, you're 
that question certainly hitting hitting it on the head is that with more take-home tests that makes metrics like daily reported positivity less useful now we'll continue to keep track of those numbers but but we may not use them or they may not be as helpful to give us hints about how much COVID is is actually uh, being transmitted throughout a community um, but also too that that's how and why the uh, the colored alert system is helpful once we're in the red zone uh, or red alert that means that uh, COVID is being transmitted at a very high rate throughout the community and there's a lot of dis discrete outbreaks uh, going on so that can be a helpful way of, uh, of thinking about or making decisions about if you want to travel or have gatherings or how to go about those things and keep on living a relatively normal life so if it's in red red alert then the chances of getting uh, infected are increased drastically i was just going to mention that uh get ready for a lot of changes in regards to uh, take-home test availability uh, one example of what i'm talking about is the biden harris administration it, they're also strongly incentivizing health plans and insurers to set up networks for folks to conveniently pick up uh, at-home testing across the country. So I, I expect that that's something that will develop and unfold over the next few weeks. So stay tuned. Mm -hmm. You know, I found that they're wondering uh, if the tests are mostly used for people confirming that they're their suspicions that they're sick or not. There's a subtlety in there that I'm missing. Well, one of them might be... Um, if you're differentiating a common cold or influenza from COVID, it's helpful to know today uh, if you have COVID or not uh, for one big reason, is that Omicron is highly infectious, even more infectious than measles, which makes a public health and healthcare officials stay up at night thinking about it. So the implications there are that if you know that you have Omicron because you, you see your uh, at-home test pop up positive, then there is a very high likelihood that you're able to transmit to the, that to other people and, unless you take precautions. So that's your opportunity um, to hold up and isolate uh, and stay away from others at home uh, for about five days. And then after five days, you can release yourself from isolation, but continue to wear a mask <clears throat> and go get a booster if you haven't. But continue to wear a mask and be real careful for the next five days after you release yourself from isolation. Okay. Is there a way to report positives from home tests? Or if I get a positive in my home test, should I immediately go get a formal test at the testing clinic? You know, at this point, I don't have a great answer for that. But I think that uh, checking in with your primary care provider is a great idea because they may have other instructions that impact your health but also the health of others uh, in your household, especially if other people around you are at increased risk for really bad outcomes related to COVID-19. Lauren Carroll and Dorotha Ferraro, thank you both very much for joining us. Uh, it's been a uh, crazy week in the world of COVID this week, and um, I want to thank you for joining us. All right, we're going to send it back to the studio now uh, to uh, Josh and Simon, who I want to thank for engineering this thing. Uh, this is Jay Barrett. You've been listening to the COVID Brief.